The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Ever notice how the bits of language we use all the time are often the bits we study the least? Like ums and ahs, and the way conversations flow, and... what else? Uh, oh yes, how could I f***ing forget? Curse words. Today, we're taking a deeper look under the hood of the conversation machine, and inspecting its sweary bits and bobs a little more closely than usual. A little later on, we'll speak with Emma Byrne about her book, Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language. Yes, we're actually going to talk about the science of swearing. If you want the uncensored version of today's show so you can hear the few swears we say in their unbleeped glory, head on over to the show notes for this episode to download the special uncensored version of today's show. But before we get to the swearing, let's take a closer look at the vehicle we use to deliver them, the conversation. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Nick Enfield, Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sydney, Director of the Post-Truth Initiative and the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. He's an expert on language, culture, and mind, with a focus on social interaction. His work has appeared in The New York Times, The LA Times, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, Science Magazine, New Scientist, and The Times Literary Supplement. He's here to talk about his most recent book, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. Nick, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So your book is about linguistics, but a particular sort of zoom in level of linguistics that I had never really given much thought to before as being kind of part of linguistics. It is, in fact, the level we're using right now, the conversation. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, when you say it's it's in linguistics, uh, a lot of things are meant by that term. And if you go and do linguistics at university, it, it's interesting because th in a lot of places, the focus of linguistics at university is really on, not really so much on what we're doing now, which is free, spontaneous dialogue, but more on the structures of sentences and phrases and words and so forth. Linguistics has a very uh, strong tendency to look at the abstract properties of language in terms of, you know, how information gets packaged and what are the logical sort of uh, hierarchical structures in phrases and that kind of thing. So actually that those kinds of questions are more in the mainstream of linguistics. And what I'm looking at in this book is actually from the point of view of of the mainstream of linguistics a bit peripheral and one of the things i really talk about in the book is how uh these things really deserve to be in the center of a, a proper science of language it is interesting that conversation you talk about being in the peripheral of the study of linguistics when it's sort of the thing we probably use language the most for <laughs> yeah exactly so you know from the point of view of um uh, you know i talk a bit in the book about the idea of a of a Martian linguist, and this is really riffing off something that um, the famous linguist Noam Chomsky is often quoted as talking about. You know, he says, if a linguist were to come down from Mars, they would notice, of course, that humans have language systems all over the world, but um, they the question would be whether, you know, what they would see at the, the center of language, and the claim has been, well, they would conclude that, you know, there was really just one human language and it was based on these particular properties of uh, of syntax, that is, you know, the rules for putting sentences together. And I kind of 
address that in the in the book in the sort of first part of it and i say well actually when you think about it uh it's the conversation that the martian linguist would see just as you just said that, that what we really do with language most of the time is talk to other people in a completely free-flowing uh dialogic sort of way and we we do it in situations where we're going about our business where you know buying things where talking to our colleagues, we're talking to our families. And if you imagined coming in from outer space and looking at language, what you'd, what you'd really be struck by firstly is that it is a kind of glue for social interaction among individuals, uh, members of this, of this species. So it's really the most kind of prominent thing about language is exactly that, that it's a, you know, we're producing these noises or if it's sign language, we're moving our bodies in certain kinds of ways. Um, and what that's primarily doing is functioning to uh, bring us together in social relations and to get things done together. And, and really, that's what I take to be the, the primary sort of function. But that's v- virtually never the way in which language is introduced in, you know, the uh, undergraduate study of, of language at, at, at university. Usually, you start out with the basic building blocks of language. These are the sounds that you uh, start with and these are the structures that words are built out of and these are the way you build up phrases so it's actually only at the very end of uh, maybe your first year of linguistics that it's even mentioned there's such a thing as kind of social functions of language which to me really has things the wrong way around you've often referred in to a conversation from a linguistic point of view as the conversation machine why did you choose that word machine well it's sort of partly comes off of um, some other terminology that I've used uh, together with my colleague Steve Levinson, who I worked with for a long time, and he used to use the, or does still use the term uh, interaction engine, which is somewhat different, uh, sorry, somewhat similar, um, but slightly different in some way. The, the, the idea of a conversation machine was really intended to kind of elevate or focus on the idea that there is something that humans are equipped with that make conversation possible. Uh, and it's, it's this thing, whatever it is, is something that scientists of language really have to figure out and, uh, uh, you know, and discover what, what its elements are. So it comes out of the science of language in, in cognitive scientific approaches to language, particularly, uh, owing to the work by Chomsky. There's a, an idea of universal grammar. This is a technical term in linguistics that refers to, you know, whatever it is that uh, exists in the human brain and mind that makes it possible for us all to learn whatever language we're exposed to as, as little infants. This is the sort of primary puzzle of linguistics where, you know, you take a newborn child and you can transport them to anywhere in the world and expose them to any language in a normal sort of social situation and they will just learn that language uh, with native capacity. It's quite incredible, and, and that's an observation that, uh, that has puzzled linguists, and the, the question has been, okay, if that's possible, which clearly it is, uh, and it's not possible with any other species, there has to be something in the human mind that, that we're natively equipped with that makes this possible, and that, that whatever that thing is, uh, it's been labelled universal grammar in in certain approaches to um, 
to to language, to linguistics. And and really, when people talk about universal grammar, they're talking about grammatical structures and and the structure of phrases and so on within within sentences. Essentially, the kinds of things that you would observe in the way that a sentence is organized. So together with my colleagues, when we were sort of looking at language differently and saying, well, hang on, it's not, you know, language is not just about how sentences and phrases are organized. It's about how social interaction takes place. Um, you can ask the question about universal grammar from this point of view of, of, uh, of conversation. So the notion of a conversation machine is essentially, you know, our answer to that, uh, to that basic question. What is it that a human being is equipped with cognitively such that they can carry out conversations in the way that we do. And uh, and it's really, I mean, it's a serious question because we carry out conversations in quite particular ways, the same particular ways all over the world as far as we're, uh, we're learning. There's some quite robust uh, similarities about, you know, in terms of how conversation is structured. And the question is, well, where do those similarities come from? Where do the basic structures of language come from? And our way of sort of articulating that is to say, well, there's, there's got to be something that we want to call the conversation machine. And um, it's a thing in a way that we ride along in when we're having a conversation. Uh, it partly consists of cognitive capacities that people have. But also it consists of something that is higher level than that, something that's not really just encoded in our brains or minds, but it's something that we achieve uh, collaboratively with other people. So imagine that the conversation machine is like a, a buggy that you get into with another person and you ride along in that buggy. Um, the buggy is sort of invisible, um, but in a sense, when you have a conversation, you're uh, the way that you speak, the timing, the things that you say are all being calibrated against what the other person has said. They're all you're responsive to what the other person is saying. And in a way, what you do is not just pulled out of your own mind, but it's part of what is a joint activity, essentially, or, or a form of joint cooperative action between you and another person. So when I say the conversation machine, I'm talking about that that combination of individual cognitive capacities that we bring to interaction and the aspects of interaction that emerge essentially from uh, from being in this joint activity that we call conversation. It's really interesting to think of conversation as such a teamwork and collaborative thing. And, and I mean, it makes sense, right? If you sort of stop and think about any conversation you've had, it is a highly collaborative thing. It's two people interacting together um, in a way that the other ways we use language are sort of a bit more uh, single person performative. So you write something down and maybe later someone else will read it or you maybe perform a speech. Um, but in a conversation, there's these sort of short bursts and turn taking that happens that doesn't happen in, in other ways that we use language. And it, uh, the book made me realize how kind of surprising and complex that can really be something I do every day. Never really thought about. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think that's the insight that is, missing from a lot of mainstream linguistics and uh it comes that the that insight is much more prominent in approaches to language that are not really developed within linguistics itself uh, that's sort of one of the interesting things about a lot of the stuff i discuss in the book 
that uh, especially aspects of psychology and aspects of sociology have really contributed to this view of language as, as a collaborative, cooperative uh, form of behavior. So in psychology, you have people like Herb Clark um, at, at Stanford University who's really um, talked in exactly this way about language or Janet Bavilis would be another uh, person in Canada who – They've, they've said, well, you know, if you think about uh, the psychology of how people process language when, when they're actually using it, um, you know, you've got another person involved. So your psychological processes are not internally, uh, you know, they're not screened off from other, they're not private, essentially. Um, but one of Herb Clark's points is that it's more than just the fact that your that your performance is kind of public when you're when you're using language in conversation. It's that you are actually entering into a kind of contract with another person when you're having a conversation uh, to play your part and to play your role. So you know, if I'm talking to you. Uh, about what happened this morning, something happened on the bus and I arrive at work and I start telling you about it. You know, I'm not just putting sentences together. I'm, I've am i committed to actually telling you this story and I have to get to the punchline. Uh, and for your part, you've committed to listening to it and you have to monitor for when the punchline comes and when it comes, you have to kind of react in a way that's appropriate and so forth. And, and when you really look at how language is used in context that way, you find that both parties to to language usage are, are very much invested in what's happening and they've very much made a commitment. In the simplest way, I mean, they've made a commitment to not just leaving halfway through the conversation. Um, you know, if you call someone on the phone, you can't just hang up in the middle of it, right? You have to, at the very least, take your leave and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and that is all, it's not just politeness, that's about dealing with uh, the kinds of commitments that, that you've made. Those kinds of issues about social commitment are, are exactly where you go from psychology also to, to, to sociology and there's been this big uh, push of research going on for very many years now since the, the late 60s in fact um, in what's sometimes called micro sociology so looking at social relations at the at the micro level um, there where you've got people um, in the tradition of conversation analysis, as it's called, or other forms, you know, ethnomethodology, other other areas of microsociology, those people have similarly pointed to uh, the the properties of interaction that invoke things like accountability. So that's something I talk about a bit in the book, where if you uh, do something very simple, like ask someone a question, you know, you're not just producing a bit of language; you're actually putting some obligations on that other person to respond to you. Uh, if they can, they should give you the information you're asking for. I mean, some basic um, obligations are now suddenly put on the table. And you, as, a, as somebody who's just been asked the question, you can be held accountable, right? I can say to you, hey, I asked you a question. Or if you didn't hear me, you can say what? And I am uh, similarly obligated to repeat what I said or clarify what I said. And that, that sort of framework of social accountability around language usage is fundamental to how we use it, but uh, it's not part of the, the usual um, you know, picture of the technical analysis of language. And it's also not something that you know, is often thought about when we think about what makes language uh, special in our species, but, but it is one of the, 
to those things that does make language special in our species because when you look at other communication systems, you don't see that kind of accountability uh, at play. Let's talk a little bit about timing and transition in conversations. This is another section of the book that I found really interesting um, because you, you brought up a you bring up sort of a point, which is we often think that people talk and overlap all the time, but actually when you think about how much you use conversation on a day-to-day basis, you don't actually interrupt each other very often. You don't talk over each other that often given how much time we spend conversing. So can you talk about sort of the timing and the transitions in conversation? Because this is uh, really interesting at the kind of low level and how quickly we're doing some of this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the timing of interaction is really uh, interesting for a lot of reasons. And I mean, maybe the first one is related to to what you just started saying there, which is that people often find it surprising to be told that there isn't much interruption or overlap. I don't don't think you used the word interrupt, but not much overlap in, um, in, in conversation. And people often, you know, if I say that, uh, oftentimes audiences or, or listeners or readers will say, oh, I don't really believe that, you know, what if you go to New York City or what if you go to, you know, this place, people are constantly talking over each other. Um, so that's a claim that's made. Um, but, of course, from a scientific point of view, uh, you're not just going to accept people's claims about what happens. You want to go out and actually find out empirically if that's what actually happens. And I've been involved in um, some big comparative projects that have that have aimed to do just that. So um, the the claim, well, there was a claim that was made. Uh, now this is going back to a, a, a very famous and um, widely cited paper published in 1974 um, by three sociologists by the name of Sachs, Shegloff, and Jefferson, and they analysed uh, conversation in English and. They identified a system that they referred to as a turn-taking system for conversation in English, and they, uh, they, they, they made an argument that basically what people are trying to do in free-flowing conversation is to avoid overlap and to avoid leaving gaps. Um, and they got into a bunch of details about how that's actually done, but they're, they're kind of one of their key claims was that there was this kind of norm of uh, no gap, no overlap, and they talked about how it is that people uh, achieve this. And it got a lot of attention and a lot of interest. And, and, you know, one of the reactions was, yeah, well, it's not like that in the culture that I work on or it's not like that, you know, in the language that I that I look at. Um, so the first kind of interesting point is that people have these strong intuitions about how it is in some other, in some other language. But we know from linguistic research across the board that, that, you know, people, because we all use language and we all like to talk about it and we're all sort of immersed in it, we often have strong views about <clears throat> how language is and, and how we use it. But actually, when you go out and measure it, you find out that people are pretty bad at introspecting about how they really use language. They have ideas and views about how it is. Um, and, and if you show them the facts, you know, a typical case would be somebody saying, I would, n- I never say that word. I would never use that grammatical construction. Uh, but if you just record them for five minutes, you can play back the recording and you can hear them actually using it. Um, you know, that's quite typical, uh, in linguistics. So there, there was an empirical question that arose, which said, well, how, what does, you know, the timing of conversation actually look like? Is this study that was done on English in the seventies just representative of how English is, or is it actually, 
uh, you know, a, a, a something that reflects how humans as a, as a species uh, converse. And, and for a long time, that question was not tested uh, in, a, in a systematic way. And that's what we set out to do together with colleagues, um, Tanya Stivers, my colleague who's now at UCLA, and Steve Levinson and a, and a list of others. We said, all right, well, let's actually kind of test this and let's look at a bunch of languages. Um, and this study was published in, in 2009 where we uh, got together a team of people who had field sites in different countries around the world. I, I, for example, I myself work in Laos in Southeast Asia and we have people from other parts of the world. And uh, what we did was to just go out and get primary data, not to ask people how they talk, not to you know, uh, try to recall from memory how people talk, but to simply take our video recorders into villages and uh, homes and informal settings where people are talking and just actually record free-flowing conversation. And we focused in on questions and we looked at how, you know, what happens when people ask questions of other people? How quickly do people answer? What uh, In what ways do they answer? Uh, and so one of the things we measured was simply what does the timing properties look like? If I ask you a question, and this study was focused on yes-no questions, ones that just require an answer of either yes or no, and we focused specifically on yes, and we found, um, you know, if you uh, – we just simply took out our, you know, put it on the, up on the computer and we wrote down for every example we had, which was hundreds and hundreds of examples across these languages – what was the time delay between the end of the question and the beginning of the answer? And so the grand average of all of these, uh, well, this was an eight-language study from really very different parts of the world, the average uh, response was just around 200 milliseconds, a little bit over 200 milliseconds. So that's about a fifth of a second. If you hear somebody answer a question with a 200 millisecond gap, it doesn't sound like there's any gap there at all. It sounds like it's just a uh, there's a there's just a zero uh, gap, zero overlap. You can measure that there actually is a tiny bit of gap, but in terms of how we hear it, uh, it just sounds like boom. It's a it's a very direct response, and that is where the mean is of this whole distribution. So I'm talking about throwing all the languages together. The question then is, okay, well, if you look at the languages separately, uh, you know, do they show variation and what does the variation look like? Well, we found there is a little bit of variation around that mean. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> you've got uh, Danish was one of the languages in the study, and Danish had uh, an average response time of um, a little bit later, a little bit longer um, than English has, it was later by about another 200 milliseconds on average. So uh, that means that on average, when Danish people respond to a yes-no question, uh, the delay is about 400 milliseconds. Now, if so that's two-fifths of a second, right? Less than half a second gap. And if you go to the, the literature where people have written <clears throat> about what conversation is like in Scandinavian languages and Scandinavian countries – you know, we quote some of these in the study where people say, you know, um, people will wait a few minutes before responding to your question and have these old fables of, you know, someone asking a question in the morning and the person answering it in the afternoon. Uh, so it's very interesting that people have this strong view that there's long delays. In reality, the long delay, what we perceive as being this long delay is just a, a fifth of a second. It's a fraction of a second. But 
cognitively from the point of view of, in this case, from the point of view of an English speaker, hearing that extra little beat of silence, that extra little fraction of a second silence uh, is actually magnified in our minds. Why? Because we're highly sensitive to these little distinctions in timing. So if I answer your question with a no, for example, with a negative response, across the board, that's going to be delayed a little bit. And we find that there's a pattern, this happens in all languages, that if uh, there's a negative response, it will be sort of delayed a little bit. So those types of differences, we need to be very sensitive to them within our language. So in English, uh, you know, a few hundred milliseconds delay will tell me something like, oh, this person is hesitant or they're not really willing to you know, answer my question or some other sort of implication like that. So when we go to another culture, in this case, if we, you know, we go to, to Denmark, for example, and we ask someone a question, uh, then we import that kind of uh, our, our native calibration, if you like, and we, we misunderstand these kind of nuances of how, of how people respond. So, um, you know, to kind of come back to your question, the, the, what that shows is that we're highly sensitive to very small differences in timing, um, but within a culture, we do calibrate slightly differently to where is the sort of target for, uh, for timing in, in conversation. It's a, it, what we find, and many studies uh, since then and before then as well, uh, have shown that this uh, offset, this temporal uh, delay of about 200 milliseconds is pretty much sort of the universal target, and not just in questions but in other uh, transitions between turns in the turn-taking structure of, um, uh, of conversation. 200 milliseconds is around the target um, for what sounds like an orderly on time transition then you've got of course a, a whole range of other possibilities sometimes i can answer very early uh, i can answer in overlap before you've even finished your question and, and and you started out asking about overlap well sure overlap occurs but again in our minds we think oh look these people are talking you know over each other all the time but in reality, overlaps, they are there, but they're very brief and they're at the edges of the distribution. Similarly, long gaps uh, occur, but if, but basically what stands as a long gap in a conversation, uh, if the conversation is, you know, hasn't lapsed or something, it's, it's continuing to flow freely. One second is about the limit. Different, uh, researchers, including Herb Clark and, and, and Gail Jefferson, who I mentioned, um, pointed out that there is something called a one-second window. I have a chapter on this in the book um, where, you know, there's interesting effects of where you place your response within this one-second window, that is the window of time after the other person has finished talking and, and when you are going to start talking. You can control your response within that one-second window with subtle effects. But once you, you reach the, the, the time delay of around about a second or slightly more, then the system kind of breaks down. The, the, the person who just, for example, if someone's just asked you a question and you delay by more than a second, they might do something like re-ask their question or, you know, uh, say what or, you know, something else will happen because in a way the system is broken down. So uh, it's a very tight little window that we work within and it doesn't really matter which language you're speaking. It's about a one-second window where we have to do that work. Nick, this uh, the book is 
really, I really enjoyed reading it. And it's one of those books where as I was looking through it, there wasn't anything in it that I was particularly shocked by, but it was one of those books that made me think about something I do every day in a, in a much more kind of low level way and actually think about the complexities involved in something that I don't on the surface put any real effort into. So it was a really interesting book to read. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I hope that, it makes an impact in terms of the cognitive science of language. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that, that, that cognitive science is supposed to do is to really sort of unveil, you know, the things that we do easily and effortlessly and really show how hard they are and how amazing, uh, you know, the things that we do are. Uh, and in terms of the, the, the discourse around language, I think that these issues around conversation and how we pull it off are really fundamental to understanding what the language faculty really is. Um, so, yeah, hopefully these things will get sort of uh, more and more foregrounded in the conversation as we go along. If you want to learn more about Nick Enfield, his work, or his book, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation, you can find links to click in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, have been posted at scienceforthepeople.ca. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Emma Byrne is a robot scientist working to develop intelligent systems and a writer for Forbes, the FT, Global Business Magazine, and The Guardian. Her interest in neuroscience led her to write her first popular science book, Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language. Emma, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me. So I can't quite explain how excited I was when um, scrolling through like lists of new science books. Uh, when I saw a book on the science of swearing, I have to tell you, I haven't clicked by so fast in many years. Thank you. That is really gratifying. <laughs> so other than enjoying a good swear yourself, as I'm sure many of us often do, what made you think, I bet there's science here? People ask me a lot about how I got into the science of swearing when my background is AI, when we're talking about computers that don't have the kind of emotional or pain sensors that lead us to do most of our swearing. But I was working in a computational neuroscience lab and looking at the ways in which those wide range of senses, you know, not just vision and audition and taste and touch, but the visceral senses, the ones that are to do with pain and emotion, how important they are in terms of us being able to learn things or to develop strategies that are creative and resilient. And realizing that you know, computers don't have this internal sense, the proprioception or the, the nociception that allows us as humans to basically triage all the sensory data that we have and decide what's important. And I realized that pain was really, really important. And I initially wanted to write a book on that. And I still think there is a book in that at some point. But I got sidetracked by swearing, partly because swearing is fun, um, but also because it seemed strangely paradoxical to me that swearing is dem demonstrably effective. Swearing is demonstrably effective at, um, at killing pain. Swearing is demonstrably effective at being able to communicate emotions and even quite complicated value judgments, even when the rest of our language has been decimated by a stroke. 
But we tell ourselves that we shouldn't be doing it. We try to eradicate it from our language. There are various nation states in the history of, of the world that have literally outlawed swearing, and yet it never goes away. So why is there this tension between this kind of moral outrage about swearing or this discomfort with it and the fact that it seems to be so prevalent and so essential and it was that that kind of grabbed me and took me down this wormhole about swearing it's such an interesting topic and as you mentioned it is a really interesting wormhole to go down um and it, it was quite interesting to read all the variations and ways that we really utilize swearing and get a lot of utility out of it it's not just um bad language it's actually it's important for communication. It's important for team bonding. It can send really important cultural signals. There's so many interesting things uh, to talk about with swearing. So I guess probably a good place to start is, is there kind of an official definition of what a swear is? See, that's very, very tricky. Because when you're trying to do, um, so in my background, I've written a lot of systematic reviews, particularly for things like uh, medical conditions. And with that, you have a very clear definition of what you are and are not including. But all of the different papers to do with swearing, you know, some of them didn't even say which words they were using. Uh, others said that there were certain characteristics of those words, like, for example, that they are taboo, they're often used figuratively, they're certainly more likely to be used uh, either when you're emotional or to try to evoke an emotion in another person. But there is no strict definition, and nor is there a standardised test for whether or not something constitutes swearing. I've had some suggested to me over the course of researching the book. Uh, so, so the unfortunately circular one is that, you know, swearing kills pain. So if you want to know if a word is properly a swear word, uh, inflict pain on someone and see if that word helps. Uh, but given that swearing is so individual, you know, it's only going to work for that one person. Or the best one that I had was when I was talking about uh, some of the interesting swear words that are used in Canada, uh, and particularly in uh, Canadian French. And someone's saying, well, you know that these are swear words because they're used in hip hop. I was like, oh, that's a really interesting cultural marker. Because if you have a form of popular culture that exists just outside of censorship and is pushing the boundaries of what is and is not censored, if you do basically a corpus analysis, you know, compare hip hop with the kind of music that is made for radio broadcast, the the set of things that doesn't fall in the intersection, the set, the excluded set that only exists in hip hop is quite often uh, a really good guide to that country's particular swearing lexicon. I do want to talk more about the research on swearing in the workplace, because that chapter I found really fascinating. The idea that swearing can be integral to building teamwork and to promote bonding of a group of people. That's maybe to some people seems really counterintuitive at first. But if you think about your relationships with people that you work with or that you're friends with, most of those relationships probably do involve at least some amount of cursing. That's right. And there's a number of ways in which we use it. So some of my own sort of computational linguistics research looked at how football fans, British football fans in particular, use swearing on Twitter. And they don't use it to swear at fans of the opposing team or even at players in the opposing team. They use it to swear to demonstrate sympathy with fellow fans about what an excrementally bad performance their team is putting in or to say that, you know, 
yeah, this is great. We're through to the semis. And it's all about saying, I share your emotion. I see your emotion and I match it with my own level of arousal, you know, not erotic arousal, the, the sort of general psychological term, meaning how emotional you are. But there's some great research that comes out of uh, particularly Australia and New Zealand that draws the distinction between swearing at someone and swearing with someone and this thing called jocular abuse. So what you're doing there is you're demonstrating that there is an expectation of reciprocal trust. You're saying my theory of mind that I have developed about you, I believe is so accurate that I know just how outrageous I can be with you to the point that you will be almost on the verge of getting furious with me, but not quite. And I trust that you will trust me that I'm not actually being a when I say this. And it is that kind of, it's almost like a, a verbal trust fall. You know, you call your mate something outrageous and you are saying, I believe that our relationship is strong enough to to withstand this. And we all know that we have friends that you take the mick out of one thing, you know, maybe their timekeeping is a bit off and they're constantly late for things, but actually they're not really that bothered about it. And you might josh them about it. But say they are sensitive about their weight or their, you know, how much they've read or their educational attainment. You know, if, if a friend of yours is is genuinely um, you know, self-conscious about their level of educational attainment, you don't go around calling them a idiot. Uh, you pick on something else that maybe they're not doing so well at, but also that they're kind of comfortable with. And by doing that, you say, look, there's easier meat for me. If I really wanted to hurt you, there are worse things I could say to you. I've picked the one that says that not only have I noticed this about you, but I've also noticed that you at least pretend that you don't care. So you're saying, I have this really sophisticated mental model, not just of your behavior, but of your emotional relationship with your own behavior, which is so many meta layers of cognition about you know this person, what they do, what they feel about what they do, and what you feel about what they do, and then what they would feel about what you feel about what they feel about what they do. And so this woman, Janet Holmes, was talking me through all this uh, on a, a telephone interview much much like this one and she was talking to me i think quite late at night from her university uh in on the southern hemisphere and was saying things like so there's a difference between the fuck our will and the fuck our will and she was saying these things really loud and i was waiting for someone to just sort of knock on her door and go are you okay but she said you know being this kind of linguist her colleagues are totally used to you know you, you take a visitor down the corridor and past her room and they're going you know the difference between you're a stupid and you're a fact and it's like you know we just have to say to people no no this is this is research but people are still astounded that people spend a lot of time looking at swearing. But when you study how much swearing is used in the workplace, it is one of the most widely used ways of motivating people, showing sympathy, demonstrating group bonding. And her point is that to not study that would be like, you know, not studying how people go out to dinner together or how people demonstrate their professional affiliation by what they wear. You know, it's a really important part of the anthropology of work. So, yeah, she was a fascinating person to talk to. So this idea that swearing comes from not just our sort of basic language processing centers, but is so tied to emotion and can be so resilient to quite extensive um, brain damage, which is something you talk about in the book, that 
what does that tell us about kind of the nature of swearing and where it comes from? It tells us that it's it's just so massively redundant in the brain. So I mean redundant in the sort of engineering sense, not redundant as in there's no use for it, but redundant as in we have multiple kind of backup or alternative ways of producing it. So there's something called propositional swearing, which is, you know, when I not necessarily entirely consciously, but there is a decision rhetorically to use a swear word in a sentence. That is likely to come from the same part of the rest of my propositional language. And for most of us, particularly most right-handed Westerners, that's on the left side of the brain in areas like Broca's and Wernicke's. But even when those are completely destroyed, in fact, removed, you can have a left hemispherectomy and still be able to swear with a degree of fluency. And that is because we have a secondary store of these emotive linguistic terms. And bear in mind that spoken language is at its very you know, final level, the, the ultimate level that we experience on the other end of it is a set of muscle controls, very fine grained muscle controls at that, that there is a part of your brain in the more emotive sort of centers of the brain, loosely speaking, that can still have access to the muscles that control your diaphragm, your lungs, your esophagus, your tongue, your teeth, your lips, and produce swear words. And this is fantastic, you know, that you have this connection between the finest grained motor cortex and what we tend to think of as being so rudimentary, you know, things like anger or fear or frustration, that actually we know that they are so important to our survival that they too make these connections and they too have behaviors you know whether they be clenching our fists or baring our teeth or saying a swear word that are designed to allow us to protect ourselves and that redundancy that ability for the emotional part of the brain to continue to carry out this sort of essentially the, the pinnacle of motor coordination which is speech it's i just think that's terrific that speech is something that we seem to be alone as a species, you know, in, in being able to do, you know, even chimpanzees, they can manage uh, sign language, but they don't have the, the vocal coordination for speech. We're alone in that, but we've decided or evolution has decided for us that making sure that those connections are preserved from more than one area of the brain, that we have other ways of speaking when those areas of the brain are destroyed, you know, either by happenstance or because it's had some form of utility, we still have those connections, which is, to me, is just astounding that there is this sort of secondary pathway. And again, it it reminds me as someone who develops you know, AI systems that we start with this idea of a problem that we want to solve, a usually a value that we want to predict and some data that we think we can predict it from. But the brain, our own human intelligence never evolved in that way. It didn't evolve with a problem to solve in mind. You just had to be good enough to reproduce. And so this idea of multiply redundant systems that are wired together in all sorts of you know, sort of overlapping ways that are only revealed once someone's had a catastrophic form of damage to the brain. Swearing is just one of the things that allows us to unpick how those connections overlap. I want to talk a little bit as well about some of the social consequences of swearing, because this I also found really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about what you learned about the difference between how women who swear are seen versus men who swear? 
Yeah, I mean, the caveat is that this research now is about a decade old. And I say caveat, I think that's probably distressingly wishful thinking on my part. I'm I'm hoping that it might seem different now, but I I don't believe it would be. Um, So there was a study done in the United States about 15 years ago where questionnaires were sent to a few hundred participants and they were given swearing phrases and told at random that either this phrase was said by a man or this phrase was said by a woman. And the phrases were exactly the same. It's just the gender assignation was reversed in half the cases. And they found that consistently women and men judged swearing that purported to come from women as being more offensive than swearing that purported to come from men. What's more, when you ask people about the characteristics of the speakers, they said that the female swearers were likely to be less trustworthy, less powerful, less in control. Uh, less dateable than any man who is swearing. In fact, men actually had a little boost in terms of their power and their sense of, uh, you know, control or authority in a situation if they had a bit of swearing in their language. And they certainly suffered no dating penalty. So this view that we have of women as having to be the linguistically purer sex, as not having the same leeway as men to express ourselves without calling down some strong social judgments, it is something that persists. And you see that in the way that women change their swearing, uh, depending on whether they are in mixed or single sex company. And the the loss of female swearing in culture, in popular culture in particular, until recent years, is not reflected by when you look at women's private writing to one another. Although women were depicted in, you know, in, in, in art, in culture, in writing, in films as being less, using less strong language than men. But when we write letters to each other, particularly when we write letters to each other about, um, you know, particularly female topics like childbirth or like being married, throughout the Victorian era, women are just as blunt as men. Um, it's just that they only do it in private and they only do it with other women. So this, whether we got this impression that women don't swear because it went underground or whether it went underground because we have this impression about women, it's hard to unpick. But there's definitely an influential pamphlet that was published in the 1700s called The Lady's Calling that affected British English swearing uh, that said that women who swore were destined to become more masculine until they physically metamorphosed into men. And that the author, Richard Alistree, said that uh, an oath in the mouth of a woman is the most odious sound to the ears of God. Um, and this was highly, highly influential to the point that you know there were arguments among playwrights in London as to whether or not it was fair to let women come to plays that had you know earthy material in we were supposed to be protected for our own sake and our our innocence retained which is a damn weird thing to try and do to the people who are actually going to give birth it's pretty difficult to remain sweet and innocent when when you are actually you know half bearing at least half of the responsibility for procreation it just it makes no sense a lot of people might think about this and say, well, especially if they're not that keen on, on cursing and say, well, what's, what does it matter if women don't curse as much or use less intense curses? And I, 
And so I guess the question is, what do women lose when we feel like we can't curse freely? Sure. It's like saying that there's 10% of the rest of vocabulary we're not meant to use. So, for example, if we said that, you know, women could only use um, some of the names on the colour spectrum. And from from now on, all of the the words, you know, the names between, uh, I don't know, sort of blue and violet were now for men only. Because if a woman says, uh, I don't know, puce, I'm just, it's so offensive. That then means that if I go into a shop and I want to buy this particular shade of material, I kind of have to ask a guy to express that for me, or I have to try to express it in some roundabout euphemistic way, you know, oh, the one that is a sort of a slightly deeper shade of the, and you find yourself tying yourself into linguistic knots in order to avoid saying things. And you see this in corpus studies, that women's use of euphemism is far greater than men's use of euphemism. But the problem with euphemism is that there is a degree of self-censorship that when you choose to use a euphemism, you're also sort of holding back on some of the directness of your expression. And there is that value judgment that goes with saying, you know, this has to be euphemized. This is not something that we're prepared to hear from you directly about. It also means that when we are in situations that require catharsis or painkilling, or even when we want to partake in that kind of jocular abuse in the workplace as part of team building, we run a far greater social risk than our male colleagues. Because in order to demonstrate that we're either being funny or one of the guys or that something has gone terribly wrong, there is this danger that we are going to simultaneously be perceived in all of those negative ways that the the survey data discovered, you know, that we have less control, that we are uh, less intelligent, that we are less powerful, that we have less control of our emotions. All of these things will be ascribed to us for the use of a word that our, co- our male colleagues wouldn't wouldn't sort of receiving anywhere near the same sort of judgment. So we kind of have to spend some of our social capital, some of our um our appearance of being professional or our appearance of being reasonable or reliable in order to be allowed to use these words, whereas men do not have to pay that same price or certainly not to the same extent. And, you know, considering that we earn less on the dollar than men and we also get far less return for our swearing than men, it it seems a little unfair because being able to express the injustice of the one without being able to use the linguistic power of the other uh, feels a bit of a double bind to me. Yeah, it does. Yes, it is. I agree with you. Um, And also when we think about how the research shows that cursing and swearing, in particular in places like the workplace, um, can really add to the ability to cohese as a team and to create those bonds that make your work more effective in groups, to say to women that you can either have effective teams and feel that bonding, or you can be seen as competent and professional and intelligent. Intelligent. That's just such a double-edged sword that we really don't need. Yeah, I mean, it, and there are so many ways that women's language is policed. And I sort of I went off slightly beyond just swearing in the chapter in gender on swearing and looked at indirectness and the different scales of indirectness in different countries and the kind of the psychology behind that, the neuroscience behind that, but also just the the sociology about why some cultures favour indirectness as a means of trying to avoid conflict. And you can tell who has status and who does not have status in 
uh, in cultures by how indirect they feel their speech has to be. And in Western cultures in particular, women's speech is much more indirect than men's. So, you know, my husband will say things like, it's cold in here, I'm turning the heating on. Whereas I might say something along the lines of, is anyone else a little bit chilly? And he finds that, you know, just astounding that I, even with him, I still find myself expressing myself in a, in a very indirect way. But the research was kind of reassuring that it isn't just me. It's quite interesting coming from North America, where people tend to be a bit more blunt, uh, generally than people do in Britain. I found it sometimes yeah. an interesting uh, mix because I'm generally more blunt, I think, than the average person here, um, just because I, I am. But I also sometimes I think get a pass for that because I'm from North America. <laughs> I've noticed this with my own friends from North America as well. And there is something so liberating about uh, essentially deciding to own some of that conversational style and that direct conversational style. Uh, so my agent, for example, is is a North American, a fantastic woman called Carrie Plitt. And she has learned over the years that she is extremely good at that kind of British diplomacy, uh, particularly when it comes to giving me notes of my books, uh, which is, is very, very nice that she isn't always entirely blunt but there are times that she is extremely direct and I really appreciate how how powerful that is how quickly that gets to the point and how little space there is for misinterpretation and that's one of the reasons why we use indirectness not just women but people in general indirectness is a tool to prevent something called loss of face and again you can measure this in lab setups of you know, sort of artificially offending people or putting people in a position where it would seem impolite to refuse something and seeing what happens to their stress, monitoring to what, what happens in their body or what happens to their memory or their ability to process complex information. Yeah, so the directness, I I really appreciate how that more North American direct speech gets rid of the 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 ambiguity, the ability for the other person to kind of creatively misinterpret what it is that you're saying. And that, that use of ambiguity, that use of indirectness as a means of allowing people to get out of agreeing to do something that they find uncomfortable. So preventing this loss of face is, is widely studied. It's a really interesting thing about how we we try to allow other people space to say no to something without ever having to directly say no, because you can measure in terms of the energy drain in the brain or how it affects your cognition or your memory or your physiology that saying a direct no to a direct question is actually quite stressful. Uh, and and there are some cultures that are, are better at dealing with it than others. And I, I really need to train myself in the art of directness because it is very powerful. It's quite interesting. I do find myself sometimes here being blunt a bit more often than I might have in the past uh, back in Canada. I think just because I have the kind of protection of they'll think it's because I'm Canadian, not because I'm a woman. And they won't. It doesn't. It, I feel like I'm a bit more freed of some of the social consequences of swearing as a woman or being blunt as a woman, because I can kind of hide behind the well, it's just because I'm from North America. So it's it's all fine. It is terrific to have that almost like a persona and, and navigating this idea that, you know, it, it's something that we do very, very skillfully. It's something called um, code switching. And we're very, very good at changing the way we speak to, you know, the difference between how you speak to your boss versus your mum versus your friends versus your kids. 
but that ability to create a really detailed theory of mind and saying, if this person sees me as being more on the North American than the British end of the spectrum, what license does that afford me? What features do I have access to that I wouldn't have at this end of the register? And it's phenomenally difficult to unpack. And I, I don't know any lab studies about code switching yet, uh, but looking at how people's brains you know respond to things so there's there's an effect that you can see in eeg which is called mismatch negativity so you hear the same thing over and over again or you see the same thing over and over again and then you have a stimulus that's slightly different there is before you can even articulate what changed there is a sudden drop in the voltage in parts of the front of the brain. And I would love to see, you know, sort of play phrases that, you know, it's a woman talking in a normal sort of way. And then all of a sudden she says something more direct. Can you see a mismatch negativity? Is that stronger if the woman is British accented than North American accented? You know, I'm, I'm dying to just get people in an EEG cap and measure just how much more offensive it is, given that I don't have a North American accent and how much I need a dialogue coach in order to be able to get away with it. There's also, I know, um, uh, speaking with some people, uh, some black women that I know as well, they're, they're always very aware of how swearing from a black woman can seem much, much more aggressive than it can if you're white. And that's also some complex cultural conditioning we have around who gets to curse and who doesn't get to curse. Absolutely. And again, it is about saying, you know, I, you are not allowed this form of power, um, that marginalization of language. And there's a, a Amazing Saturday Night Live sketch with uh, it's Leslie Jones and I cannot remember who the white actress was. I feel it may have been Reese Weatherspoon, but it was about you know sort of the white lady wanting to complain and Leslie Jones demonstrating that long burning patience of you know I I I know that I cannot respond to this in a I demand to see your manager kind of way because what's seen in a white woman as you know being direct but not necessarily aggressive entitled but not necessarily incorrect that in coming from Leslie Jones's character you know she manages to play this split level of I feel exactly the same way as you in order to navigate the world safely this is how I express myself and again it's not something that I'm particularly familiar with studies on but it does come into that code switching of what you feel you can and cannot say in order to achieve a certain effect so there's a a bit of uh, logic called argumentation a study of logic that's finding its way back into ai now i did it years ago and it sort of fell out of vogue as neural nets took over but argumentation is coming back in and this idea that all forms of information exchange are a means of achieving a goal the way that we socially express ourselves in support of that goal tells us so much about our relative roles and what is and is not allowable to us. And, and yeah, it is, it is galling to see who is and is not allowed to be direct. Emma, it's a really excellent book. Uh, I very much enjoyed reading it. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Emma Byrne, her book, Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language, we, of course, will have the links for you to click to learn about all of those things and more in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>